Hey everybody, my name is Tyler Norwood and you are listening to the Early Days Podcast. Real founders telling the real stories of how they went from zero to one, building some of the world's most successful companies. Today's episode, we're speaking with Jake Gibson. Jake is one of the founders of NerdWallet, which I'm sure you have all seen on television commercials recently as it is quite a large and successful company. Jake tells us the story of how NerdWallet originally started out as two friends messing around trying to fix a problem finding credit cards and how they scaled that into a billion dollar fintech company. This is Early Days with Jake Gibson. Hey, Jake. How's it going? Thanks for coming on. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. So we've got Jake Gibson today. Uh, So, Jake, there's a lot of different interesting things that we could talk about in your life. I think most recently you're one of the co-founders and general partner at Better Tomorrow Ventures um, with Shiel, but also in a previous life, you're one of the founders of NerdWallet, which uh, I think recently more and more people are familiar with, with the TV commercials and all the advertising that they're doing. And really excited to talk about your experience and, you know, building a a company that ended up IPOing on the NASDAQ. Um, So just to get, you know, kicked off as one of the founders of NerdWallet, like how do you explain to people what NerdWallet is? Yeah. um, I guess NerdWallet basically helps people make smarter decisions with their money. And the way that we thought about it initially and the reason the name came to be is, uh, you know, everybody kind of has that nerdy friend that they look to for advice, whether it's like buying the right stereo system or what have you. Um, you know, we, we felt early on that, uh, when you go and you try to search for things on Google, especially around financial products, most of it's spam. And uh, much of it is pushing products onto you that are not actually good for you. And so what we built was uh, uh, initially a website, now an app and all that other stuff. Uh, that's how old the company is. Um, <laughs> that uh, is intended to kind of be that that nerdy friend that really helps you think through what matters and what doesn't matter when it comes to choosing things like credit cards and loans and mortgages and insurance and what have you. And you guys, so NerdWallet's been around for a while. So you guys, I think and correct, you guys started around 2009? Yeah. Yeah. Tim started working on it in 2009. I joined on with him at the beginning of 2010. Gotcha. So I'd love to start there. You know, I always like to start with uh, the, the team first. So Tim Chen was, um, you know, the founder and, and, and your partner when you guys first started. And my understanding is Tim is still the CEO of NerdWallet. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 Yeah, he is. And so can you talk a little bit about, yeah, can you guys, can you talk a little bit about how you guys met? Like how did that team come together? Um, How did you guys sort of have the first conversation? Was it a prior relationship? And uh, what, what did the conversation go in terms of you guys deciding to start a company together? Yeah. um, So Tim and I have actually known each other since eighth grade. We grew up in Atlanta together Um, and we were kind of partners in crime for a long time. Um, literally and figuratively. Um, <laughs> uh, we had a number of kind of entrepreneurial endeavors as, as teenagers. And, uh, and then he went off to Stanford. I went to MIT. We stayed in touch. And then we, we both ended up in, in New York at the same time. Uh, he worked for a, a few hedge funds uh, in the years that we lived in New York and actually lived across the, basically across the street from, from one of my apartments at one, at one point. Yeah. Um, and then I, I worked at JP Morgan as an interest rate trader during that time. And then um, at the end of 2008, <clears throat> when the world was melting down, the hedge fund that Tim was at um, wasn't doing particularly well. And so he got let go. Um, I actually almost got let go, <laughs> but a different department within JP Morgan ended up picking me up and I just ended up switching desks. But um, so he got let go and decided in 2009, like it didn't make any sense to go out and try to find another job in the hedge fund space. Cause I mean, the world had ended at that point pretty much. Yeah. And so instead he just kind of started traveling the world and, and kind of enjoying some time off. He had like a, you know, fun employment experience. Yeah. Um, but, but he had this idea in the back of his head for what would eventually become nerd wallet because he, um, 
it was kind of this interesting confluence of events that all happened at the same time. So his, his sister had started a coupon website in Australia in 2007, yeah. uh, or maybe earlier. I think she sold it around 2007, actually. Um, and she made some money off that and, and went to him for financial advice. Uh, like what credit card should I get? Like, where should I put the money? What savings accounts? Like, yeah. help, help me figure out what to do with my money. Like you're, you're my wall street brother. Like clearly you, you're an expert in these <laughs> things. And, he goes and does what anybody would do and starts like Googling these things. And he's specifically looking for things like, how do you not spend a bunch of money on foreign transaction fees? Because she was, you know, parking the money in the U S but living primarily in Australia at the time. And, yeah. and, and, um, kind of coincidentally, Tim had also around the same time as a hedge fund analyst looked at the S one for creditcards.com, which had, which was trying to go public at that yeah. point. And, um, that kind of taught him a lot about like the SEO financial lead gen market. Like you look at this website that hasn't been updated since the mid nineties and the company's doing like $70 million a year in revenue and not spending anything on marketing. And he was <laughs> yeah. like, what is going on here? And then when he goes and, uh, tries to like search for financial products for his sister, he's like, okay, I see what's going on here. <laughs> like it's very, it's like NASCAR. They're just like, everybody's like pushing ads at you and trying to force products on you. They're going to make them the most money. Yeah. But meanwhile, you can't get answers to the very basic questions of like, what does any of this even mean or what's actually going to matter to me? You know, I don't want, uh, if I'm looking for a credit card with a low interest rate, I don't want bank rate or creditcards.com pushing me a card with a 35% interest rate. Uh, yeah. That's like an Amex Platinum card. Like, <laughs> or not an Amex Yeah, because they're know, getting the like most some premium rewards card or something. Card. Yeah, they're getting paid the most off that card. So they're incentivized to push it on you, even if it is clearly not what you're looking for. Um, gotcha. And so he got a little annoyed by that. I kind of planted the seed in the back of his head. And and so as he's um, as he's traveling the world, he buys a he buys an EPC. <laughs> I don't know if you remember <laughs> these, but it was basically like these kind of like these tiny little portable PCs before tablets became a thing. Um and starts kind of reteaching himself how to code. Like both of us had done a bunch of programming in college and stuff like that, but then, yeah. you know, fell out of touch with that stuff when we went to wall street. So he starts yeah. reteaching himself how to code, teaching himself like web programming and stuff, which wasn't really a thing when we were in college <laughs> and, um, starts to hack together like a rudimentary version of essentially a credit card search engine, like kayak for credit cards. You move a couple yeah. sliders around, you tell us the three or four things that actually matter in your life. And we'll tell you the one best card for you, what's going to get you the best rewards or the lowest interest rate or the best balance transfer. If you like to travel a lot, what's the best travel card for you? So on and so forth. Um, and he started building out this, this huge database of, of all of this information on these different credit cards so that he could actually float the best one up to you and not just whichever one was paying the highest fees. Yeah. Um, so he starts working on that in 2009 and as whenever he'd come back to New York, I would have dinner with him and kind of geek out with him about it because, uh, even though I had been seduced by wall street while I was at MIT, <laughs> I kind of always had it in the back of my head that I really wanted to be in tech. Um, yeah. and so as soon as I got an iPhone, I would be sitting on the training floor all day, like reading TechCrunch and yeah. seeing friends of mine, pop up in TechCrunch articles because they were starting cool companies and stuff like that. And so I would just geek out with Tim whenever he was in town about, uh, about the company and, and, uh, you know, ask him, are you going to fundraise? Are you going to get venture capital? Even though I had no idea what that meant. Um, <laughs> all the buzzwords. Uh, yeah, exactly. All the things <laughs> I was reading, uh, in my, in my Google, Google reader feed. Um, and, uh, so I was getting really excited about it and I kind of already had one foot out the door in terms of wall street. Anyway, I wanted to make sure that I didn't get kind of blown out during the financial crisis, uh, yeah. to just kind of keep my resume clean. But I'd already kind of decided at that point that I didn't want to stay there. And my next move was going to be California. I just didn't know how or what I was going to do in California or whatever. So, um, staying in touch with Tim on this, tried to help him out however I could come beginning in 2010. I just, I jumped on, um, uh, I basically put in my notice to JP Morgan and then jumped on with Tim and told him, uh, I wanted to help him. Uh, and within a few months after that was like fully on board full time kind of helping him around the clock and, uh, kind of officially earned the co-founder title. <laughs> yeah. And at that, like, 
So, so Tim is coming to New York and you guys are having drinks and kind of catching up. Like, did it, did it feel like what he was working on was like a full blown tech company or did it feel like it's like, like it sounded like he kind of started off as like, Hey, there's like annoying thing that I saw randomly. And while I'm fun employed, I'm just kind of sort of like tinkering around. Like, did it feel like a tech company or did it feel like this like quirky little thing that Tim was building um, so I have, I have to imagine in the beginning, it felt like just kind of like a weird side experiment. And then it, like, yeah. how did it progress into you guys saying like, Hey, there's really a company here for us to build. Yeah. So I think, um, first of all, neither one of us had a mental model for what is a real tech company to build and what is just a side <laughs> yeah. project. Like that whole idea of like a lifestyle company versus a tech company or whatever that yeah. wasn't top of mind for us. And it wasn't even part of the zeitgeist in general at the time. Yeah. You know, this was yeah. before, um, this was before there were a million blogs about everything startups and yeah. how to fundraise. And before every VC had a, <laughs> was on Twitter and whatnot. And, and <laughs> like Twitter all this information was just, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before all this information was like public domain about how to build companies and stuff. Like we were just kind of, figuring it out as we went along. And my mindset was like Tim was or is like one of the smartest people I know. I mean, he's brilliant. And we used to joke when he worked on Wall Street, we called him King Midas because it felt like everything he touched turned to gold. Yeah. And my view was I just want to work on cool shit with friends of mine and learn a lot about technology. And I kind of actually skipped over this part, but I kind of approached it from this perspective of, I don't want to go to business school. I don't want to go to grad school. I want to get into technology. Nobody's going to hire me. So I want to start working on something and kind of force myself to learn, force myself to meet people. And then when it fails, which it probably will after a couple of years, then (laughs) hopefully I will at least built a little bit of a, a resume that I can then go shop to other companies. And so I just approached it as like, I have this really smart friend who's working on something that he is convinced is going to make money. And I'm going to jump on and try to help him do that. Um, Love it. There was there, that whole mindset about whether we're building a real company. And, and I mean, in retrospect, like we didn't raise any outside capital, uh, for a very long time, it was just the two of us for like two years. It was absolutely a lifestyle company uh, for yeah. the first couple of years there while we tried to figure out what's the business model going to be like, how is this going to work? How are we going to grow this thing? And ultimately we kind of just thought we were going to get it to like a couple million dollars in revenue and either live off the cash flow or try to sell it to some sort of aggregator for a few million bucks and then go figure out our next thing. Like that's, yeah that was kind of like the extent of our ambition at the beginning. <laughs> um, yeah. that, like you um, said, is like, do, do cool shit. And I mean, I think another, like there's two heuristics in there that I believe very much in that I think inform that decision. One is like part of, well, I think one of the best aspects of being a founder and being an entrepreneur that a lot of people like they sort of get lost on or they don't use it as the decision-making is like, just work with people that you really like. Like you have the opportunity to surround your people that you surround yourself with people that you actually enjoy spending time with, which sound like you and Tim had. And then the second, ideally people who are a lot smarter than you too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, built sort of building the, building the ability for your ego to accept that like, it's okay to be around a bunch of people that are way smart. You don't always have to be the best at that. And I think secondly, like, one one thing that you mentioned I think is really interesting is like before this whole startup zeitgeist existed, right? There was no like, I mean, right before this um, recording, like I was like reading a Paul Graham essay, right? There, there was nowhere near the amount of high quality information about building startups. And while yeah. all of that info is really cool, I think it holds a lot of founders back as well because it creates this perception like you have to know everything you have to have all the answers it like really good founders actually have this like incredibly detailed plan in the very beginning because it appears that way when they talk about it retroactively but the reality is like they just basically started doing something and a lot of times it was very trivial in the beginning and they just kept doing it and kept figuring out ways to grow it and uh, optimize it and it ended up becoming something really large like I think one of the really valuable lessons for what you just said is like we started a company that ended up IPOing on NASDAQ. We never set out with the intention of that, right? We weren't like, this is it. We're going to IPO a company. And I think it's really hard for mm-hmm. founders to set off because there's all this like, 
oh, well, like, what's your TAM? VCs want to see founders with huge vision, this and that. And a, pe- a lot of people get misled where it's like, hey, you've worked on an incredible academic case study of like why there's an opportunity in this space, but like you haven't built a single thing. I'd much rather you build a really stupid, trivial first business and then tell me how you're going to grow it step by step than have this like elaborate end-to-end plan. And it sounds like you guys very much did that because there wasn't really other any other option, right? Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's so, totally true. So can you talk... So, so you and Tim knew each other. So you guys had a prior relationship. Do you think... Like, can you talk to me a little bit about... Like, did you guys ever sit down and like have the conversation of like... Hey, like I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to move to California. We're going to work on this together. Or did it evolve more organically? Like how did you guys establish this new, um, vector of being co-founders and working on a company together? Yeah, it was, um, it started out organically. Cause like I said, I was, I was like, I kind of put in my notice at JP Morgan. And I was helping Tim out before I moved to California. Cause he was still here in New York. We were, we ended up being bi-coastal for, um, for the first year. Uh, um, and so it wasn't initially in the plan. Like he never asked me <laughs> to like help him full time. It wasn't even really my intention initially. I was just helping him out and trying to learn, but I got so excited. I mean, I got so into it that like I said, within a few months we did kind of sit down and have the conversation. Like, uh, let's formalize this. Let's start to, you know, First of all, it was an LLC at, the, at that point. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, let's uh, get like a real lawyer and like paper this for real. I think even, I think his dad owned 1% of the company. There was some like, there was some weird, um, some weird like kind of playing startup sort of things in the beginning there that had to get cleaned up. And, yeah. um, and then, yeah, uh, like splitting the equity with me and and then kind of figuring out, roles for the two of us and stuff like that. We, we did ultimately end up having to have that conversation, um, which, which largely kind of ended up being like, clearly this is more Tim's company, Tim's idea, Tim's kind of the strategic visionary here. Uh, so he's going to be running all that. And meanwhile, I'm much more organized (laughs) and and he doesn't want to deal with like legal accounting, um, you know, hiring <laughs> any of sort of yeah. that stuff. And, uh, and so we kind of loosely ended up dividing responsibilities along those lines. And then in the beginning, when it was just the two of us, we, um, we kind of split the coding, um, and just worked on like one of us would just grab whatever needed to be done and work on it. Yeah. Uh, which, came back to bite us later when we hired real engineers and they had to <laughs> go through and untangle all of the garbage that we'd slapped together. <laughs> They're like, not only uh, are there bad habits built into this code, there's two different people's bad habits built into this code on, on both sides. Yeah, and then right? lots of hacks to work around each other's bad habits. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing things the hard yeah. way. And yeah. And, I mean, obviously, like looking back, sort of humble beginnings and NerdWild ended up being a big success for both of you as founders. Are there any specific things regarding you and Tim as a team that you attribute to you guys being able to be successful? Um, I can't say it's, it's, it's so much like kind of me and Tim as a team. I, I think that like, there was something about it just being the two of us being laser focused on making this work. And we have at at the beginning, because we weren't thinking of it as like a huge business that we had to go build. We really were thinking of it as like us versus them. Like it was me and Tim and like eventually essentially a closet in Redwood city. (laughs) And and then we had these like multi-billion dollar companies out there, like bank rate that were screwing people over. And we had to figure out how to take how to like beat them at their own game. And it turned out to be a really interesting, like exercise in creativity, uh, to come up with the strategies and stuff like that, that we used to, um, basically build our SEO and, and like get, get this company of like two people and nothing else, uh, in the press. Like we ended up in money magazine, like our first year in existence, basically, um, 
uh, it was all just by us just like being super scrappy, willing to do basically anything. We, we had all these weird things that we would do. Like we got in a fight with the St. Louis Fed one time because they wrote an article about how credit card <laughs> rewards were aggressive and they were bad for people. And like the thing was just full of bad math. And so we wrote a rebuttal and we submitted it to the New York Times. <laughs> and so the, the St. Louis Fed ended up writing a, a revision. They didn't back down on the thesis, but they changed the numbers substantially. Um, and yeah. actually, there ended up being a footnote to NerdWallet in the St. Louis Fed report because we were the ones that called a knot on it. Uh, <laughs> and we actually we uncovered a bunch of frauds, like prepaid card scams that were popping up all over the internet uh, and, uh, and reporting those to the press. And, um, you know, it was a little bit of just like anything and everything, like any idea that came to our minds that would get us some attention and get some eyeballs on nerd wallet was, was fair game. And that was fun. It was like guerrilla warfare. Um, yeah. and I think we were really I mean, good at that. <laughs> I mean, it's ballsy, right? Like just listening to you here say like we wrote, the New York times and a rebuttal to the St. Louis fed is like, Oh, that's so funny. But I can imagine like at the time, like the fed, like, you know, you, you go up to these government agencies and at that, I mean, those are scary, scary people and scary organizations to go after or to like try to go to bed at night thinking that like <laughs> the St. Louis fed is pissed off at us. Like they're thinking about us and they're pissed off. Um, yeah, I think it's we awesome. Literally like, spirit- like two 20 something year olds in like the cargo <laughs> shorts working out of a broom closet like <laughs> i love it uh, but uh, i mean it sounds like you guys had uh, so so as you guys started scaling up how valuable do you feel like that attitude was to like the culture that you were building out like you mentioned this like us against the world and if you look at um there's actually really interesting um like relationship models that make marriage is successful and us against the world is actually a very successful marriage model. So it's essentially like you have a bond because it's the two of you taking care of each other and like you're going after everybody else. Um, and like how, how valuable do you think that sort of shared attitude was, um, as you guys got this thing off the ground and started, you know, building a team and instituting a culture into, you know, what you were building. Yeah. You know, to be honest with you, it's not something I really, thought about, but I think it was ended up being pretty crucial because over time, once we actually had a team and started thinking through like, what are our actual values and how do we want to run this company? And, and, and what are the values that we want to instill in our team? Like that kind of us against them attitude maintained, although we, we kind of looked at it a little bit differently. Like over time, it just kind of became like focus on, focus on the consumer first, then the team. Um, uh, and so let's say like a huge number of our strategies over the years and the things that we did to get pressed for nerd wallet to the things we thought about when we were developing products. Like at one point we had a, a really successful kind of prepaid card product um, to help people who couldn't get the credit cards on our website, help them get something else. And the vast majority of prepaid cards out there are total like scams. I mean, the amount that they charge people, it's basically predatory. And um, so we made a very proactive effort to, um, we basically didn't monetize our prepaid card product at all. We intentionally did not monetize the cards because uh, we only wanted to push the cards that basically didn't pay <laughs> because they weren't, yeah. they didn't have predatory fee structures, so they couldn't pay affiliate fees. Um, and so we made an effort that even the cards on our site that did technically pay affiliate fees, we didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't monetize those. So, um, and that was our way of kind of going another us against them, against the bank yeah. rates of the world and such like that. We also had a credit union product for a long time there. And I think we still have relationships with some credit unions around various things, but, uh, we would push a lot of kind of cards and loans and stuff like that from credit unions that didn't actually also didn't really monetize for us. Um, 
because it was just, it was hard for us to justify pushing some crazy high fee product on our end users when there was a credit union down the street from them that would do it much better. Um, and so these are all ways for us to just say like, you know, we're not super focused. We're, we're, we're laser focused on what's going to be best for the, for the consumer. We're not super focused on what's going to make us the most money and then yeah. screw all of our competitors who are only focused on, on what's making them the most money. Um, yeah. And it, and it sounds like, and just for clarity for the listeners, credit, Union versus a bank. Credit union's nonprofit, right? So it's banking products, lending products, yep. et cetera. And you have to be nonprofit to be considered a union versus a bank, which is almost solely for profit, right? Yep. So, I mean, that asked, so did you guys feel, uh, I, want, I want to talk about kind of like, so Tim had this idea, he kind of hacked together this first version. Like, can you talk a little bit about what did the first version of the product going to market look like? How did you guys start to identify who your target customer was outside of like Tim had experienced this pain point with the sister? How did you guys go about kind of navigating like who's our first target market and, and what does our first product look like and get that flywheel spinning? Yeah. So um, we didn't actually do kind of proactive user testing. It's more of that, Tim saw this problem that he wanted to solve around how to find the best credit card. And the first version of the product looks like a very ugly version of like the Google homepage where it's just a search bar. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was basically just like a couple of sliders uh, where you would put in, you would kind of approximate how much money you spend in certain categories. Um, and then kind of click whether you're looking for a low interest rate or whether you're looking for uh looking for to maximize your rewards. And then it would just spit out a list. It was uh, I mean, pretty atrocious. It was slow. I mean, the first time we got a real, um, we got picked up in the press. Uh, we were actually on, on vacation at the time and, and uh, the website <laughs> totally fell over. Um, so we're like on our laptops on a, on a porch in Barbados or something at our rental house, like banging away, trying to like, uh, trying to figure out how to like scale the database, like all the code was totally inefficient. So just everything broke. Um, yeah, it was, it was exactly what you would expect from two people who had no idea what they were doing. Um, <laughs> but I think in terms of like figuring out who our target customer was and stuff like that, it's, I think it's important to realize or to, 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 to recognize that, you know, we didn't have like a traditional tech product, that we would then go like advertise to a particular cohort of people because we were bootstrapping and we couldn't afford to spend any money on advertising. We focused hundred percent on SEO and we knew from both from Tim's sister's company, as well as from uh, looking at creditcards.com and bank rate and some of these other companies and how they ran their businesses. We knew that SEO for these financial products was just a massive market. And so our customer at the end of the day was Google. <laughs> is one yeah. of the best ways to think about it. Like for the first few years, at least we dedicated a hundred percent of our time and energy and resources into writing content and getting people to link to that content and then building products that people liked and getting press for when I say products, I mean that very vaguely around like calculators and things like that to help people make these, yeah. these financial decisions. Um, yeah but doing it all in a way that was going to get us like attention and press and kind of word of mouth branding and all the things that kind of feed into SEO because we knew that there were gazillions of people every day searching for things like best reward credit card. And so yeah. as long as we could, as long as we could kind of optimize our products and our site and our content and everything like that to make sure that Google recognized us and saw us as valuable, which is a heavy lift when you're, you know, one, two, three years old and all of your competition is like 20, 30 years old. And, um, uh, and when your competition literally is credit cards.com, like, uh, <laughs> Google has a tendency to overweight that a lot more than this tiny little startup with, uh, you know, a few hundred pages of content and, uh, that nobody's heard of. So we, 
dedicated all of our resources basically into making sure that Google saw us as the real deal. And yeah. uh, I think it took us almost 10 years before we actually made it to like number one for just credit cards. Like if you just go search for credit cards, I think yeah. it, that's how long it took us to, to unseat creditcards.com. Um, and it might still be like, we might still be bouncing around, but Google keeps changing their homepage. So it's like all ads now, but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that was our customer at the end of the day. It was like, you know, there was some vague, some vague view of a person on the other side of those search searches who was searching for best reward credit card or travel rewards or whatever. But all we cared was that there were X million of them searching on Google and Google needed to make sure that we were the ones that, that should, or we need to make sure that Google floated us up to the top for those search terms. Yeah. And so, it, I mean, when you break it down like that, I think it's really interesting. It's tactically nerd wallet is not really a fintech company. It's a content marketing company, right? Like you guys essentially went after media company, yeah. of like, look, like, there's a really bad business model behind our competitors, which is they're going to sell whatever card pays the highest fees, which is most likely going to be the most predatory card for whoever is looking for it. And number two is if we can be creative and go after them and beat them at the top of the funnel on SEO and pull these customers into our funnel, which is going to get them to better products at the end of the day, there's a massive business to be built there. There's like really yeah. nothing to do with FinTech. It's only thematically about, finances it's really just a content content marketing play and you know having your your product be better is that how is that how you guys thought about it um i can't i mean as with many things and building nerd wallet i can't say that we ever like proactively thought about it <laughs> we absolutely just building and dedicated it. yeah i mean we we saw it as i mean i guess at the end of the day we kind of saw it as like we wanted to build products to help people manage their money, which in theory would look like a fintech company, even though back in the day, nobody, we weren't saying the word fintech. Um, yeah. It was a couple of years before that really became a thing. But yeah, uh, thing the idea was to build products that would help people manage their money. The problem that we saw was that building products doesn't do anything. Like you can build products all day, but nobody's going to notice them. Nobody's going to care about them. Nobody's going to use them. So the yeah. only way that your products can have a real impact is if you figure out a really efficient way to market those products. And when we went deep enough down that rabbit hole, we realized that like the products themselves weren't that hard to build. What was really hard to do was the customer acquisition. And so it became like all of our resources was the customer acquisition side of things, which ultimately, like you said, meant that we ended up looking a lot more like a media company and a lot less like a fintech company. I'd say, and the year since I left, um, more and more of the, as the companies had more and more resources and the company's gotten bigger and everything, more and more of those resources have been de dedicated to the fintech side of things and building out real products yeah. that, you know, we, you know, we have an app you can log into, you can connect all your accounts with Plaid or whatever. And, and, uh, you know, we have savings accounts and all these things, like there's all these budgeting and whatever, there's all these fintech features now but nobody would have cared about those features if we didn't already have the built-in user base and the built-in um, kind of customer acquisition engine. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of that was built off of the fact that you had become the number one destination for information about things. And it's like, Oh, we happen to have some of our own products or things that we understand our users are looking for. But yeah, I mean, I see that I'm sure, I mean, you know, going back to like you're an investor now into FinTech companies. I mean, one thing, I I see all the time is like much too focused on product and this concept of like, we're going to build such a better product and almost no focus on acquisition, especially the early days and founders sort of overemphasizing product. And, and the only question I'm really interested in is like, that's great, but what's your strategy on getting in front of actual customers? Cause they're going somewhere else for this. And if you don't understand where they're going and how you're going to pull them towards you, it doesn't really matter how great your product is. Yep. Yeah. And, um, you're, uh, you mentioned PG earlier. Uh, I mean, that's basically the cult of PG. It's like 
build pretty products and make things people want, I guess is the, the YC motto. Um, yeah. Which I think in certain parts of consumer tech or especially earlier in the whole consumer tech boom, that was enough because there weren't already f- millions of products out there <laughs> that were competing for people's attention. Um, yeah. Nowadays, it's almost more important to have a distribution advantage than it is to have a, a better product. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there, <laughs> there are a lot of really horrible products that we interact with every day because of you know, the acquisition. I always remind founders, especially before like launching the first version of the product, I'm like, think about how horrible of an experience flying is like for airlines, right? Like the tolerance people have for how bad your product is, especially in the beginning is very high. If you're doing something that's really valuable for them. Um, and I, I think, I mean, ultimately like I do, I do agree with the, like build things people want. One reason, you know, like you said, and I think you, you guys have probably probably seen this when you were building out nerd wallet. There's sometimes this founder desire to like focus too much on what you personally think the world needs. Right. So there's sort of this like martyr aspect to like what the world really needs is X, Y, Z. Um, and it's like what the world needs and what the world wants are two very different things. And (laughs) if you, you know, if you have some sort of idealistic impact that you're trying to have, that's amazing. And you should pursue that, but you have to marry it with something people really want, right? Like, the Nissan Leaf was a great example of like, okay, people don't want to save the world by driving an electric vehicle. If it only goes 50 miles, it looks like shit, uh, right? Like it's not fast. (laughs) It doesn't perform well, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, well, nobody wanted that, right? Who cares what the world needs? And I think Tesla is an amazing example of like, okay, let's just all admit that saving the world is fifth on the list of reasons why people would buy a car. And number one is safety, performance, looks, social status. And then the fact that, you know, it is good for the environment, quote unquote, um, is something people can brag about, but it's not at all why people would go and buy that car. And so I think for you guys, like, did, did, did you guys have times where you had to sort of battle with this goal of like, we want to, build products that make people's financial life better. Um, but sort of battling with like you build stuff, but it's like, we know this would make people's life better, but like people don't really want it. Did you guys ever deal with that? Uh, because our focus was on SEO, we had a pretty good sense of what people wanted because it's what they were searching for. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're just winning, winning what they were already looking for. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, we just focused on search volumes and wherever the biggest search volumes were, that was where we looked because it was a pretty clear indicator. And, 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 you know, it took us time to kind of build a mental model around this, but uh, those are very high intent search terms. They're not like, yeah, you know, it's, it's not so much like I'm going to start doing some very basic research around credit card. Like typically if somebody's searching for something like that, they're just going to make a decision on the spot. It's not, um, yeah. it's very different than like if people are Googling the best car or whatever, cause that's going to be like a month long decision that they're going through and they're going to gather all this information. Um, yeah. for, for the search terms that we were, that we were looking at, uh, we were pretty far down the intent funnel. Um, yeah. and so, I mean, the focus on, uh, SEO, I mean, it was kind of a blessing and a curse and, and the blessing side of things, uh, you know, we did know exactly what people wanted and could just laser focus on that. Uh, on the curse side of things, we did not know anything about those people. <laughs> we did not have a relationship <laughs> with those people. We did not know anything yeah. about them. Uh, we yeah. Once we actually got our shit together and started doing some of the analytics and stuff like that and tried to start building real relationships with our end users, we realized that like we were reacquiring some customers like 25 times or something rather yeah. than giving them an easy way to just log in and we would save their information and then all the stuff that was relevant to them, we could just float up rather than them having to go Google search term land on nerd wallet. <laughs> yeah. We could actually kind of <laughs> short, shorten that and, uh, or shortcut that and, and, and build an actual relationship with them. And we, uh, for a while there just did not have the DNA for that. It is taken a while to that transition from media company to FinTech company was not, uh, 
as straightforward as we would have liked it to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can imagine there's a lot of hard times and, and late nights trying to figure out, I mean, like, like you said, you go through SEO and you start diving through that data and not being able to really specifically pinpoint who these people are. They're just, you know, IP addresses and unique visits and building out all those analytics and attribution is no small feat. I imagine too, by the time you guys were doing that transition, I mean, the amount of volume you were doing was massive. So it wasn't, it wasn't a small amount of data to sort through and figure out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this so, was a few years ago. So it was, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty big volume. At that we're, point. we're cruising. So Jake, one thing that I talk to a lot of founders about, and you know, I always love to talk to founders who've sort of made it, um, like yourself, uh, is just sort of the actual lifestyle of being a founder. So balancing, um, I mean, if you want to call it mental health or just overall health. Um, so in your experience as a founder and, you know, now you're a founder of another firm, which isn't by definition a startup, but I think starting a VC fund is very similar to starting a startup. It's just a different business. Uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of your journey and figuring out yourself and, you know, how you, how you stay balanced, the strategies you have on, you know, living this lifestyle, which I think is a pretty high performance lifestyle. Can you talk a little bit about your learning and development and strategies there around just staying balanced while you're, while you're building these things? Um, yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I guess the first thing I have to say is like very much a work in progress. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is one of like, yeah, like I don't have it figured out and I probably never will, but uh, yeah. I can kind of tell you some of the things that work for me. One is, um, so I, I mean, I discovered, uh, or kind of rediscovered exercise back when I was still working on wall street. Um, uh, after I'd gone years without working out or running or anything, um, I was a yeah. cross country and track runner, not a good one, but I ran cross country and track when I was in high school and then did yeah. not do anything in college and didn't do anything for years after college until I looked up one day and realized I was, I had no hobbies and I was gaining weight. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so started exercising and just, I, I got hooked and it's kind of become my primary source of like mental health and outlet from all the stuff that, uh, that I do. Uh, and then over the last few years, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting older and then we also had a lot of other crises to deal with at the same time. Um, yeah. uh, I finally discovered things like, kind of meditating and therapy and like all this basic <laughs> stuff that in retrospect is yeah. like, duh. Um, it took me a while to really like dedicate the time and attention and, and start to take it seriously. Like I kind of, like a lot of people in my position or a lot of sort of type A personalities just figured I would just bang my head against the wall until things went my way <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> instead yeah. of like, admitting that I'm not perfect and, and, and looking, <laughs> uh, and looking for help. Um, yeah. So yeah. I mean, it, it is certainly, I can't say there was like a particular strategy for it. It's more that, you know, I start to see things in my life breaking down and I have to start thinking about why that is and, and, uh, what to do about it. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, great. physical I mean, fitness to, has been the biggest thing. It's more recently, the mental fitness has, has been something that's crept up on me. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, just to hear, I mean, someone with the CV that you have and the accomplishments that you've had so far in life, I mean, to hear that it is still a work in progress and it is sort of a never ending journey, I think is really valuable to people. You know, it's easy. Like you said, 10 years ago, every VC in the world wasn't on Twitter. Now that we all are, it's, great in some aspects, but I think it also creates this very unrealistic representation of like, we're all humans. We're all on this journey together. And yes, some people have done really cool things and accomplished things that, you know, subjectively, there you go. What does it say? Human. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I actually right there, have tattooed so, on my so, arm. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you listening, Jake's just showing me on his, on his arm. He has a tattoo that says human actually here, almost the same spot, Jake. I have a, 
tattoo that says win today. And it's just like, just focus on what's right in front of you. Right. I think there's a lot of pressure to like have a plan and know what's going to happen in five, 10 years, et cetera. And you sort of forget that each day is its own challenge and to kind of break it down and compartmentalize it to like the best thing that I can do is just be the best version of myself that I can today and show up for the people in my life that matter. Um, and not, not be too hard on myself and be realistic about what I can accomplish in one day. And I think for me focusing on, I really like the quote, like, um, you know, when you're tired, don't quit, just rest. Um, and, and, yep. and sort of approaching it as like, we're here on the planet for a fixed amount of time. And there's a lot of really cool things that we can do, but it, it really all is just a marathon. Even when it feels like you need to sprint towards things, like it really always is a marathon, your relationships and what you're doing for work and everything. But yeah, I mean, I think it's great to hear that from people like you. I mean, even I, I follow you on Twitter and sometimes I, you know, see your tweets and I'm like, man, Jake's got it all figured out. He's just living it, living, living at the top of the world. <laughs> He's so smart. His tweets are so smart and so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, what, what you don't see when I'm tweeting is like my, a kid screaming into each ear. Like, <laughs> yeah. The house is on fire. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can't keep like, my don't know what everyone's straight. eating for dinner. Exactly. Yeah, that's what has been our, our household has been a, a disaster. It's like, you know, you see me on Twitter and or, podcast episode drops and it feels like Tyler really knows what he's doing. But meanwhile, like our air conditioning has been broken for the last 48 hours. And it's like 105 degrees in Texas. And <laughs> oh, man, yeah. last night my wife and I and our three dogs slept on an air mattress in like the studio in our backyard because it has like its own little air conditioner. It's like just <laughs> nice. right back to square one. <laughs> <laughs> Glamping. Yeah, exactly. It did feel like we were on like a like a glamping trip, or like we're just like camping out in our backyard. And it's it's yeah. ridiculous. Um, so, Jake, one thing I like to end with. So, two questions. Question number one: As a founder, entrepreneur, now investor, are there a few particular people that you follow and you know think are just great sort of thought leaders, or that you pick up a lot of really interesting stuff from, whether it be on social media or otherwise? That's always a hard question for me to answer because I am just, uh, I am a very, uh, promiscuous consumer of content. <laughs> so, um, okay. I read a lot. I, you know, I follow a ton of people on Twitter. I, I have like the Finn Twitter, which is like the more kind of financial markets sort of people. I have the Silicon Valley Twitter and then I just have like random other people and stuff like that. And I also, um, I also, um, I guess the one thing that kind of stands out for me more than, than the typical like tech newsletters and stuff like that, that everybody reads the things that, uh, that I think I consume that are maybe a little bit differentiated. I read a lot of like science fiction, a lot of science history, uh, and generally just geek out on a lot of kind of academic things around, uh, kind of math and science and stuff like that. And, um, and I think it does actually help me just have like a broader view of the world and I'll go through phases where like, you know, I was interested in kind of the history of technology, the history of computing, the history of the internet, the history of Silicon Valley. And yeah. I think I probably read like six or seven books in a row, um, about different aspects of it. So like the Claude Shannon biography, like Richard, two different Richard Feynman biographies, the making of the atomic bomb, uh, which is like all the same characters, <laughs> but now we're talking about the Manhattan Project. Uh, yeah. By the read, way, did you um, see Christopher Nolan? Uh, um, Cillian Murphy, Tommy Shelby from Peaky Blinders is playing Oppenheimer. So Christopher Nolan's oh, next nice. movie is basically a, a biopic about Oppenheimer, the Manhattan That'll be Project. Cool. Yeah, Destroyer of Worlds. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, <laughs> But then, you know, you go back and you read uh, books about the history of Silicon Valley and they talk about uh, kind of Bell Labs initially on the East Coast and like all the semiconductor people who came over here and then all the physicists that got involved in it. And it's like a lot of the same people like Richard Feynman worked for Bill Shockley. And like, you know, you see a lot of the same people show up in uh, in these books and then the history of computing going all the way back uh, to like the uh, like 
kind of mid 1900s and then the history of the internet and how that played off of that. And, uh, I love, I just, I love reading things like that. And then you get into like reading about the history of venture capital itself and just this kind of the, yeah. even just the concept of, of startups and, uh, how that yeah. all came to be. And I just find all that stuff really, really fascinating. And, and one of the things I find most interesting in reading these things is like, everything old is new again, you know, like there's no new ideas really. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, when you go right. deep enough and especially if you read old sci-fi, like the, uh, a lot of the ideas that people bang the table about and are like totally fascinated by these like big new things were things that people were writing about back in like the fifties and sixties. Uh, the technology just yeah. wasn't there yet. Um, yeah. it's really, it's just, it's remarkable when you kind of really start to tie all these things together. Um, yeah. Just like create new technology just creates new avenues and, and, and vectors for us to sort of apply our biology, but like the biology and the psychology of humans doesn't change. So you sort of always end up at some new derivative of the same thing that happened before. It's like, I always yep. think right now with what's happening with like social media, right? And everybody talks about like, oh, the internet is destroying democracy and everybody's trying to kill each other, et cetera. And it's like, uh, we've we've just created a new theater for like human tribalism to thrive. Like that's how humans <laughs> used to be in the physical world. And then we like yep. figured out how to all get along because it was better for us. And now there's this new arena where there is no rules. There is no decorum, right? Like the internet doesn't have thousands of years of, of cultural, you know, social expectations that keep people from mm-hmm. acting like that in the streets. And so it's like, that's how people would act if it was socially acceptable to act like that. Like on yeah. Broadway, on Congress Avenue right here, it's like, we just don't allow that as a society anymore. But now there's like this totally open forum where people can just be like the worst and best versions of themselves with no repercussions. So yeah, I do find yeah. that fascinating as well. Um, well, Jake, I think we'll wrap there. But I really appreciate you coming on and Really appreciate all the learnings from from Nerd Wallet, and uh, I wish you and Sheil all the success in the world with Better Tomorrow. And uh, we'll chat with Sheil on yeah, Friday and, and and get a deep dive into that. But uh, I really appreciate it. I think this is great for founders who are just getting started or in the in the trenches right now building their company. And uh, I appreciate you sharing it. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks for having me. Hey everybody, it's Tyler again. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more about how you can build a company that's backed by venture capital, we'd love to talk to you about our founder studios all around the world. For more information on that, visit www.antler.co. We'll see you next time.